Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by City Hall reporter Joshua Fector and investigative reporter Brian Chasnoff. We're a couple of weeks away from the beginning of early voting in San Antonio uh, municipal elections. And this past week, we got some information about how fundraising is going for uh, mayoral and city council candidates. Uh, Josh, you wrote a story about that. It, I was sort of surprised at how much money both uh, Mayor Ron Nuremberg and his challenger, Greg Brockhouse, have, have raised. And this this period was the 30-day reports they submitted. So this was basically from January 1st until, what, about March 22nd or something. And, and I, I was surprised by how much both of them raised. Yeah, um, both of them, you know, Mayor Nuremberg and, uh, you know, former councilman Greg Brockhouse have been saying kind of this whole time, hey, you know, it's it's a difficult fundraising environment. Uh, you're you're coming up against the the, you know, the economic um, fallout from the uh, from the pandemic. Um, so, you know, if you're a business owner, you know, it's it's a little bit more difficult for you to raise money, uh, you know, if you're worried about you know, making rent or, or mortgage payment, you're probably not going to be as likely to give. And, you know, that's, that's kind of been true for campaigns throughout the pandemic. That didn't really seem to be the case uh, this time around. Both men are, are, are raising more money than they ever have before. You know, as a result, um, you know, you're, you're seeing, you know, Nuremberg has raised about 318K. That's that's about double what he raised during the same time period, the last campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, Brockhouse doubled basically his fundraising from uh, the previous period in the last cycle. But, you know, they, they both kind of have their, their disadvantages mm -hmm. here. Nuremberg started out the race with less in the bank than he did uh, two yeah. years ago. So he's kind of having to make up for that. Uh, Brockhouse doesn't have the uh, financial backing of the police and fire unions this time. The fire union uh, is not endorsing in the race, at least for now. And he got hundreds of thousands of dollars from them last time, right? I mean, that was a big factor. It, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars that they, you know, they both spent, I think it was well over 500K uh, on that race. Um, you know, the police union has its hands full with the... Uh, with the Fix SABD campaign fighting uh, Proposition B, which is to uh, decide whether the police union will keep their collective bargaining rights. Um, you know, Danny Diaz, who's the head of the police union, has said, hey, you know, it's pretty likely we're going to endorse in the campaign or in the mayoral race, uh, but they haven't yet. And probably won't put much money in anyway. Yeah. So basically, you know, it, it's probably going to be a little bit more difficult for the police union uh, to endorse this time around, uh, because, just because you know Danny Diaz is is you know the new leader of, of the police union. They're going through kind of this sort of you know rebuilding kind of phase. They're you know they've got new faces in, in leadership, and you know Nuremberg a couple of weeks ago went and you know met with the police union leadership and told them that he supports collective bargaining, right? Uh, which you know probably makes it more difficult for them to 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 come out against them. But you know they're supposed to come out with their endorsements uh, sometime this month, yeah. so we'll see whether that actually had that effect. And Josh, the only uh, sitting council member to to support to say that they support fix SAPD is Roberto Trevino, correct? Yes. Yeah, so council is is just kind of not is trying to stay out of it. 
for the most part. Uh, the council got basically this legal advice from the city attorney, Andy Segovia, saying, try not to weigh in on this. As, as far as I understand it, that's that's what the Are advice was, wow. Uh, wow. was to sort of not weigh in on it just because, you yeah. know, they uh, they believe that it would jeopardize the ongoing collective bargaining negotiations over the new contract. Um, there, there are a couple of people who have flouted that. Uh, Trevino is in favor and, and Manny Palaez came out against it pretty early on. Yeah. And Brockhouse has made the case that, that you know, in 2018, uh, when we had three propositions on the ballot from the, the fire union, um, Nuremberg was very open about his opposition to that and, and, and campaigned against that. So, I mean, I... I I, I understand what the city attorney has said, but I mean, I think that that council members, I think, I, I would expect them to 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 weigh in on something this important, and I, I'm sure there's some who just kind of don't want to get involved in it. I, I was going to say that um, with regard to to uh, Brockhouse, I would recommend uh, anybody listening to the podcast uh, read uh, a profile that ran over the weekend uh, in the Express News by our colleague Bruce Selkrag. It's a really excellent piece that I think kind of captures. Um, the the complexity of of Greg Brockhouse, the 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 gifted politician who often gets in his own way, and uh, someone who uh, has tends to grandstand at times, but also in in some cases uh, will surprise, um, you know, uh, council members with his uh, his and and others with his uh, willingness to sort of change his his opinions and maybe uh, uh, take heed of other people's suggestions. But it's a really interesting piece, and in there he pointed out, uh, Brockhouse pointed out that because of proposition B that he didn't really expect the police union to be able to whatever, the, whether they endorsed or not, that he didn't really expect them to be able to, to put, you know, significant money into his campaign. So I think he, uh, came into this knowing that, that he, he just was not going to be, the, the climate was not going to be the same for him as it was in 2019. Yeah. He, and he, he seems to have made adjustments. So like, you know, this time he, he perhaps had to make, you know, more of an effort to, to fundraise, um, which kind of runs counter to like what both men are saying is that like it's kind of awkward to go and ask people for money uh, during this uh, during this time, just given you know the financial strain that people are under. Um, so you know which one is true. Um, but something I wanted to uh, before we got too far away from it, Gilbert. Um, you know, you mentioned that council members, you know, and the mayor took sides on on the f- fire union propositions, right? Uh, back in 2018. That took place during, you know, this years long spat between the city and the fire union over their contracts. So, I mean, like that's was that legal advice given then. But, but I mean, it's it's clear that they're they're able to do it. And perhaps they, as you said, are, are just not are not willing. But I, I wanted to at least make that point clear as well. That's a great point. I've got a question for for both of you guys. Um, do you feel like the mayor has explained uh adequately how he can tell tell the, the union that he supports collective bargaining but then also claim to to be neutral on the proposition it doesn't really make sense to me you know to, to, quite honestly because if you're saying that you uh, conceptually support the conce- the collective bargaining process you're saying you that 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 in a way is saying that you don't that you you don't agree with the proposition. It's a transitive property. Yeah, thing. You, you don't. That, that's basically saying you don't agree with the premise of Proposition B because Proposition B from is is based on the premise that collective bargaining does not work at least in San Antonio because the unions have had too much leverage and they they exploit the process, um, and so uh, 
he he does not seem to agree with that premise and so i i would it sounds to me like he he has issues with proposition b but he doesn't necessarily want to take a stand on it well you also you also see other candidates taking like that exact uh th- that exact sort of tactic which is i'm going to say like i support fix SAPD um, in in one case with Terry Castillo, who's running for council in District 5. I support the aims of fix SAPD, uh, but she stops short of saying she's in favor of of Prop B. Uh, Mario Bravo uh, running in District 1 says he doesn't uh, that he supports collective bargaining. Um, uh, But, you know, it says says he's staying neutral on Prop B. you know, I, I don't see. Yeah, I'm, I'm like you, Gilbert. I don't see how that's not taking a position on the matter. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, Brian, o- you're telegraphing how you feel about it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Brian, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the story that you and Emily Eaton have worked on uh, regarding uh, Fire Chief Charles Hood's uh, son who was arrested last June at the airport. And I think that what's Interesting about the story. I mean, there are a lot of things interesting about the the what happened there, um, the rift between uh, the the chief and and police chief McManus. But I also am really interested in the um, sort of open records uh, aspect of this, which I, I'm hoping we can we can talk a little bit about because that's also becoming an issue in the mayoral race. If you for anyone who who isn't familiar with the story, could you just talk a little bit about what happened with the the, the fire chief's son last June. Sure. So, so last June, Fire Chief Charles, Charles Hood's 17-year-old son was arrested at the San Antonio International Airport for uh, possessing a, a fake ID and uh, failing to identify it to a police officer. Um, he was he was arrested, taken to jail, and uh, the, the this caused a rift between Chief Hood and Police Chief William McManus ultimately because. Hood disagreed with how the arrest went down. He thought it was overkill to, to for his son to be detained. Uh, this this was at the height of protests, um, the racial justice protests that exploded last year. So the the atmosphere was was quite tense at the time, um, and so it, it appears that the, the city reacted to this this situation where you had the fire chief who was upset at the, at how the police handled the arrest of, of his son, but you have the police chief saying that the, the arrest was done by the book. Uh, the city ended up hiring an attorney, an outside attorney um, who charged, I think it was $325 an hour to essentially um, interview folks who were involved in the incident and come to a conclusion about whether racial bias was involved because that's, that, that was, Chief Hood's concern was that his son, uh, Chief Hood, who's black, and his son, who's black, um, his son was detained because of the color of his skin. Um, ultimately, the, uh, the the review found that there was no racial bias. Um, uh, actually, uh, City Attorney Andy Segovia released a statement that said uh, the the review's conclusion was that there was no racial bias, but that it could have been handled differently. They didn't explain what that meant. And yeah, as you say, Gilbert, the other side, the, the other, the other dimension to this story is that everything I just told you uh, was the result of the you know reporting by Emily Eaton and myself. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, the city was was very secretive about the arrest, uh, the 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 rift between the the police and fire chief, uh, the the uh, 
taxpayer-funded review, which ended up costing, I think, a little over $5,000. Um, council wasn't even told. Um, and um, Melissa Haverda, who is the chair of the council's public safety committee, she was the only person who would even even talk to mm-hmm. us about it. I think she felt a, a responsibility right. because of her position on the committee. Um, and uh, it, it was just... Uh, so, so Emily Eaton, my, you know, our colleague at the Express News, she was on this story for a long time before mm-hmm. I got involved. Uh, I think it was about six months that the city was refusing to re- release a copy of the arrest report, which ultimately was expunged. Brian, do you know why they did they did they provide any excuse, or did they did they uh, was there any response or, or justification for for the they never cited a specific reason uh, for hmm. keeping the record from the public, even though that's required yeah. by law. Uh, you know, I think this, this is, uh, like I said, there, this, it's fascinating on so many levels. And I think that the open records uh, issue is one that it's sort of been bubbling under the surface in San Antonio for a while. We've, I think we've seen fellow uh, reporters uh, at different outlets in the, in the city, you know, express concerns about how long, you know, this is taking, I, I just know, you know, private citizens who were, who have filed open records requests, who, who've had some, some issues. And it's been complicated by the fact that, uh, during the, the pandemic, the, I think the city has stated that they've been shorthanded and so the process has been slowed down. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, um, it's, I think it's made things uh, you know more difficult. But one of the things that that's happened is um, last week Greg Brockhouse's campaign uh, put out an email. They had screenshots of uh, open records requests that he submitted. Um, I think he submitted several just like on February twenty second um, related to Ron Nuremberg's um, office expenses, communications within the mayoral office, and uh, he hasn't. Uh, he hasn't gotten the, had those requests um, fulfilled, and so he is threatening to sue uh, if he doesn't, um, you know, if the city does not provide the information he's seeking. Um, Josh, you know, how much of an issue? That I, some, sometimes I wonder with open records. I think this is a really important issue, but I sometimes wonder how much the public, um, you know, really, you know, focuses or how much how much interest they have when we're talking about, you know, something like that. What do you think about that? Yeah, it can it can it can seem like a lot of sort of um, inside baseball, sort of journalism, Twitter, sort of thumb sucking on a lot of this. Like, uh, you know, people don't care about like what journalists have problems with. But like the 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 underlying issue here is, you know, being able to have a view into how, you know, the city operates, how it's how its leaders make decisions, uh, how tax dollars are spent. Um, And and so, like, I think that that's something that um, that, you know, people can care about. Um, And I also can also know that, um, you know, you know, reporters on Twitter do tend to to complain about uh, the uh, open records requests aspect. You know, I, I have several myself that I'm I'm waiting to hear back mm-hmm. on uh, to some degree. Like, you know, I, I have records I, it, and this is kind of the normal back and forth of being a reporter. Like some of it is, you know, 
you know, you ask for a lot of records and they come back to you with a cost estimate of, you know, of several hundred dollars and you have to whittle the request down. And sometimes those are, are left, you know, pending, uh, because, you know, you're trying to figure it out yourself, um, how you, how you want to, what records you actually want. And then, you know, on the other end, um, there are just requests, open records requests that have just been sitting there unattended yeah. to, uh, you know, for, for months, if not years, I have, a, I have one request, uh, from last January that was, uh, that I filed. It was before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was, um, you know, before it really hit our shores here and, uh, you know, it was never responded to. And, you know, I've, I went wow. and asked about it and, you know, I'm, uh, we'll see when, when they'll, uh, when they'll release those records now. Um, but you know, by law they're, they're supposed to, um, and there's, you basically have about 10 business days if, if you're the city to either res to, to release the records or seek, uh, an opinion from the Texas attorney general, um, you know, the, uh, before, uh, releasing the records. Uh, and, and the other thing that, that we should say, um, you touched on this, you know, they've, they've said, you know, the pandemic is, has kind of slowed their, their ability to, to respond to records requests. Uh, the other component of that is that the AG, uh, basically allowed them to do that, um, under the state's disaster declaration. Um, and so, you know, basically, you know, if, if you filed, um, an open records request within a certain time period last year, um, you know, basically they, they, they had basically an infinite amount of time to, to respond to it under the law. Um, and they only just, started processing records again back in November. Um, and so like if you filed something in April and, uh, you, and they came back in November and, and treated it as if it had just been filed. Uh, but even then I have, I have records requests that, that have not been responded to. Basically we're in, we're in a state now where, um, if something was filed in February as Brockhouse has said, he, he filed, several uh during that that period w this is this would be considered after um the disaster period and and the, the city would have no justification for for failing to to get that information to him right is that right I, yeah i i'm not i don't know exactly what his i i read the press release but i don't know exactly what his 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 case is off the top of my head but you know basically like if like in November, whenever it was that they opened it back up in November, they would have had 10 business days uh, to either provide the records or contest the, the, the records uh, release with the AG. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they thought that there was something in those records that, um, that basically uh, was unreleasable mm -hmm. under state yeah. law. Well, before we, we wrap things up, I wanted to talk uh, briefly uh, with you, Josh, about the, um, the, the city council's action last week to create a registry for uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. It's something that's been talked about for a while. There have been people in, in, in the city who've been frustrated about the fact that we didn't have one, whereas other big cities in Texas did. What was uh, what led to this finally happening uh, after, after all the, the talk about it? So basically what happened was the state opened up eligibility to everyone. 
um, you know, every Texas adult anyway. Um, so for months you'd had this, um, this debate uh, within city hall over to whether, uh, whether to set up some kind of one-stop, you know, vaccine registry that, you know, basically you go in, you put in your information, they say, thanks, we'll let you know when, when an, an appointment's available. Um, the idea behind that is, is kind of like, just so you don't have to go through, um, calling a thousand times to try to schedule right. an appointment or try to get through on a website to where, you know, it doesn't crash on you and you can manage to get through and schedule an appointment. Um, yeah, this was very frustrating to, uh, to, to councilman John courage. He was, uh, he kept pointing out that San Antonio was the only one, uh, only major Texas city without, uh, one of these kinds of, uh, these registries, um, other major Texas cities have them, but they kind of, they kind of vary in degrees of their scope, um, and you know, for the longest time, Metro Health was was against the idea. It was like, look, look you know, Colleen Bridger, who's the head of Metro Health, basically was saying, this is not going to ease anyone's anxiety. Uh, it's not going to really help people schedule appointments because you know, there's not enough vaccine. Really, mm -hmm. that is the main problem here. Um, and all that is just set up to say that what what happened was um, Texas. Uh, opened up eligibility to, uh, every Texas adult. Um, this kind of, uh, th this kind of freaked out some, some on, on council, um, who, you know, for, for various reasons, one being that, you know, people in prior priority groups, you know, people with underlying health conditions, um, seniors, uh, still were not fully vaccinated. Like those groups were still not fully vaccinated and here they were going to have to start competing, mm -hmm. uh, with, with every other person in the state to, to, to schedule these appointments. So that, that kind of lit the fire under, under this whole process. And so what they basically came to, um, was was a system that at least encompassed you know the four mass vaccination sites mm -hmm. um the the two sites run by wellmed uh the alamo dome and the uh and uh the university health mm -hmm. site at wonderland of right. americas and you know basically like how that's gonna work is you just put you put in your information and and you know, they'll, they'll get back to you on, on vaccine availability. Um, but you know, the, there are a couple of questions raised at the council meeting one, how much is this going to cost mm -hmm. the city, you know, somewhere between hundred thousand to 200,000 was the number that was bandied about. And then, you know, how quickly this was going to be stood up, which I think is going to be, yeah. uh, more pressing, um, you know, if, at the time, which is, this was last week, um, you know, they were, you know, city staff was saying this could take three to four weeks to put together. Wow. Um, you know, so it, no, nobody's, nobody's appointment woes have been eased just yet. It's sure. still going to take a little while for, for them to put this up. Um, but, but it's not going to be the sort of broad sort of sweeping, like any, like if an appointment pops up anywhere in the city and you're on this mm -hmm. list, um, you're automatically going to get notified yeah. about it. 
Um, and and the other the other the other point to this, um, I'm sorry, I'm filibustering here, um, but the. Yeah, the, the other component to this is that it's primary that it's for seniors. Not just anybody can sign up for this list. It's sixty five and over. And and I would I would think that there are probably many people for whom this is not necessarily going to get them an earlier uh, appointment. But it you know uh, it would make the process probably less frustrating because I think it is kind of maddening for people when you know I know a lot of people who just you hear about an opening at one of the sites and then you you try to get to, you, you know on their website as fast as you can. And sometimes you don't, you don't get, you don't get there fast enough. And it's just this kind of thing where you're just going from one place to another, uh, you know, hoping to get, to get an opening. And I think that this seems to create a kind of a more, uh, coherent sort of a, a, a approach to it. And then you might not get an earlier date, but you'll, you don't have to, to go through all that frustration. I, th- I think that that's what's probably what's going to happen. And, and, um, hopefully it'll make the process better for people. Um, well, I think we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, I wanted to mention to, uh, to, uh, to listeners of the podcast, if you have any questions, if you have, uh, issues you'd like to hear us talk about, you know, we're always open to that. Um, I think we're getting a, an email, uh, for our, uh, for the podcast that's, uh, exclusive to the podcast. But for now, uh, if you, you know, send a tweet with the hashtag Pluto politics, uh, we will take a look at it and we're, and we're totally open to answering any questions or talking about anything you all want to hear us talk about. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, take care and we'll be back next week. Thanks. 